You're listening to the Eddie Out Podcast. Current conversations with our community and their connections to the river. Hosted by Natalie Zollinger. Welcome. What is up, everyone? OMG! It has been a while. How the hell are ya? I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning back in to another episode of the podcast. Man, it feels so good to be back. I know it's been a while since we dropped our last episode, so thanks for hanging in there and being patient. I have missed this so much, and it feels so good to be back. I've got some really exciting things in the works for the upcoming season, so stay tuned. Today I'm really excited about our guest. Meet Hefe Aronson, a retired river guide with an incredible story. Born and raised in Chicago, Hefe was a bit of a rebel. His mother always believed he had more to offer the world, so she gave him an ultimatum. Presented with the option of military school or outward bound, uh, Hefe chose the outdoors. He packed up his bags and headed out west for California. There, he not only found himself, but he found his purpose. Rivers, climbing, guiding, mountaineering, and even dabbled in a little bit of medicine. From California rivers, to the desert of Utah, to the clear waters of the Middle Fork of the Salmon, and finally landing in the Grand Canyon, Hefe has seen, paddled, and guided many of the most infamous rivers in the world. His story is inspiring, his wisdom is infinite, and his energy is contagious. I can't wait for you all to get to know him. I fucking love this conversation, and know you will too. And without further ado, the one, the only, Hefe Aronson. All right, welcome back, everyone. Today we have the pleasure to eddy out with Hefe Aronson. Hefe, welcome to the show. I'm really stoked to have you here. My pleasure, Nat. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And it's been a while since we've seen each other. <laughs> like maybe, um, you know, that last trip, maybe 12 years ago, 10 years ago. I can't. Yeah, I think it's about that. It's been, yeah, it has been a while. Yes, indeed. <laughs> good to see your face. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really good to see your face. And I love the, <laughs> when I asked you to do this podcast, you said, I think the last thing I told you was something I had a bad run in bedrock because you'd said, watch your downstream more. And I didn't really think about it in that run. And I think I lost the oar, but luckily I didn't <laughs> go left in bedrock. And you were, you, I was pretty bummed. And you, you, you remembered that. You remember telling me something about, you know, monkeys can row boats. So don't be too discouraged oh, yeah. or no, something I mean, about well, that. Actually, it's funny how people remember things on, you know, one side of the conversation and the other person, it was kind of nothing, but yeah, I'll, you know, I used to say all the time, you know, like any monkey can row a boat. It's more about <laughs> the guiding skills and who you are and how you get along with your parts and, you know, all that other stuff. And so I just said, oh, don't worry about it. Any monkey can row a boat. And I remember you were so upset with yourself. You said, yeah, so I'm not as good as a monkey, huh? And I was like, oh, shoot. Well, I guess I'll never say that again. <laughs> I <I'm>... that. <laughs> I was very de- defensive and I don't know what it was, but man, I, those first couple Grand Canyon trips, I was really hard on myself. I wanted to prove well, myself look, and, you know, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah. Look, you know, it's a, it's, it's pretty cutthroat down there. And I mean, in, in general, 
you know, it, everybody wants to be a river god. It's it's sort of this, you know, sort of cool ideal. And, you know, it's out, you're out there in the wilderness doing what you love and heroic and everything. And, you know, when you're in the Grand Canyon, it, it can be pretty cutthroat. So everybody's pretty even if it's not spoken about, it's, it, it's sort of in the background there. And everybody knows like, oh gosh, if I'd really want to get into the Grand Canyon, I better, you know, watch my P's and Q's. So <laughs> I totally get it. Um, you know, I've been down there in the trenches too. So it was totally cool. Yeah. And I mean, all of you on that trip, you guys were so great and you just went so many great, um, just feedback and just support, moral support. And just, you all became mentors. And I just, I, that was a trip that I never forgot. So thank you so much for, for being who you were. And I'm excited for our listeners to get to know you and your story. And, um, thanks again for coming on here and sharing everything with us. My pleasure. No, it's, uh, it's kind of cool to be talking with you and, um, reminiscing as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And I don't know if I know like much of your background. I mean, on the Grand Canyon, you do get times if you're cook crew to get to know each other a little bit, but, uh, I'm excited to hear a little bit about, you know, your, just your childhood and, and um, growing up and, and especially like, so this is just a question, like if you can talk about your childhood, where you grew up, um, what those early years were like, and then a little bit of a, how you found the river for the listeners. Yeah, well, you know, um, I grew up in a kind of a Jewish ghetto in in Chicago and, um, you know, wasn't, you know, super poverty or anything, you know, we were working class family and stuff and, um, but, you know, I kind of acted out, you know, uh, later in um, my elementary school years and early high school years, um, I, I really didn't see anything I really thought I wanted to do or be. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time walking the streets, so to speak. You know, I, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours just walking up and down the streets and everywhere surrounded by man-made objects and stuff. And you know, I sort of sought out the beach or whatever, but there wasn't a whole lot of that in Chicago, you know, and uh, I didn't really want to be a salesman. I didn't really want to be a, you know, a accountant or anything. Not that those are bad things. It just wasn't who I was. And so, you know, um, my poor teachers, really, <laughs> um, I acted out a lot. And, um, you know, it was the late 60s. So, you know, I did the usual things that you do in the late 60s. But, um, you know, long story short is um, when I was sitting at the uh, in the breakfast nook um, after having smoked and smoked yet another doobie, you know, and I was stoned off my gourd as usual because uh, I was very unhappy. And uh, I'll never forget my mother, my lovely mother. She she walked in and she threw a Reader's Digest in front of my face and said, "Read that story," and it was about Outward Bound. And uh, you know, she said, "Well, what do you think?" After I finished, and I said, "Well, um, you know, that looks cool. Whatever." And she said, well, you have two choices, son. You can go to Outward Bound or you can go to military school. And thank God, I don't know, thank the great spirits, I chose Outward Bound because they put me on a plane and I went to the Sierra Nevada in California, somewhere, you know, out west, you know, and I got off the plane and then they took us on a bus into the middle of the high country and I got off the bus And, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but it completely blew my mind. The whole, every single day, I just looked around and just thought, this is it. This is it. This is it. And, uh, you know, I sold my plane ticket and I uh, back in those days you could do that. And I 
hitchhiked around the country and uh, became a mountaineer and a rock climber and a hiker. And uh, I really found my niche. So, you know, uh, much to my mother's chagrin, really, you know, because she thought, well, what, <laughs> when are you going to get a real job, you know, and, you know, I wanted to be a guide and this and that. But, um, hey, uh, she finally got it um, before she passed away uh, at a fairly young age, 56 in my arms. But, um, she got it. And it was a really beautiful moment when we, you know, realized, you know, what she had done for me in my life. Wow, that's beautiful. It was the hour bound. Was it um, were those courses around the river? You said it was mountaineering and rock climbing. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It's kind of it's sort of segued into evolved into the river uh, in a funny sort of way but it was all mountaineering and rock climbing and stuff. And that's basically what I did. But um, on my second outward bound course, which, I mean, I would have been 17, you know, uh, maybe early 18. Um, we were up in Minnesota, cross country skiing. And uh, a friend of mine and I got really tight. Uh, he called me Boris and I called him Igor. And we we're out in the snow skiing, you know, and it's 60 degrees below zero. And he was the sort of guy that broke, lost, uh, ruined every single bit of his gear. He was just sort of one of those people, but he was such a big heart and he was so funny and we got along so well. It was really great. And so we came up with a scheme to do something at the end of that. We were both graduating high school at that at the time. And uh, my folks were planning on um, leaving for California. And so we came up with this great scheme which is kind of how I got into river running in the first place, you know, in a funny sort of way. Uh, we were going to uh, build a raft. And I mean, like Huckleberry Finn, you know, log raft and you tie it together with ropes. I mean, that was what was in our brain. Right. And um, so we were going to meet in the Tetons where his uh, mother and her boyfriend lived and he did float trips on some some place called the Snake River. Right. And um, we were going to meet there and get taught how to raft uh, logs, right, hook fin. And then we were going to go find the headwaters of the mighty Colorado River, this river we'd heard of somewhere. I don't remember even where. And uh, we were going to build, take our hatchets and, you know, some rope. And we we're going to build a raft and float to the ocean. And that's like totally serious, right? This this would have been, you know, 1970, 71-ish, 70. And uh, so long story short is we moved to California and uh, and then I hitchhiked. I built a teepee and had my mother mail it uh, to me in the Tetons because I was going to hitch to the Tetons. And of course, uh, I waterproofed the uh, canvas on her lawn and completely destroyed all the grass. But anyway, that's another story. So anyway, she mailed me my teepee. I lived in that teepee for two years on the banks of the Snake River in the Tetons. Um, but uh, my friend David, Igor, never showed up, you know, and I called him up and he said, oh, sorry, man, I, I've changed my mind. I'm gonna, I want to become a chicken farmer in Minnesota. <laughs> I was like, really? What? <laughs> Wait, what? Random, but... <laughs> I know, too funny. But anyway, um, so that was sort of a river theme that and, you know, but because Dave, David never showed up, we I dropped it and I became a mountaineer in the Tetons. And um, and then I uh, wanted to move to Alaska. And so um, but in order to do that, I, did, I needed some money and I didn't want to wash dishes the rest of my life. So I became a, I heard this cool program called paramedics was just starting up. 
And that would have been, you know, 73-ish, which, you know, was just the very beginning of paramedics. And so um, I found, I got into a course in Los Angeles and I knew my folks lived there. So I, I bought a school bus and fixed it up sort of, you know, total like uh, there was a back wooden back deck on it and there was a stuffed rocker tied to the back deck. And uh, there was some skylights and a couple wood stoves and, you know, we'd get stuck in traffic. And I had a friend of mine who was uh, hitching a ride to California with me and we get stuck in traffic like on old Route 66, you know, like when it went through Williams and through Flagstaff and through all these towns in Arizona, I'll never forget, I'd be sitting on the back couch rocking away and playing my guitar and people in the, in behind us would be in line in their cars just in hysterics right <laughs> um anyway the old hippie bus but um long story short is I got to California became a paramedic applied my trade in San Francisco and uh LA for a little while and found that it was just not what I was meant to, you know to do and so um uh, at the end of that, I finally quit. And that's a whole nother story we don't have time for. And it's not really river related. It's a great, funny story. But long story short, as I was in San Francisco, I was, uh, you know, wondering what I was going to do in my with my life. And I was 21 years old. And okay, where am I going? What am I doing? And I had thought of a, a, an old buddy of mine that I used to climb with. He's, I just talked to him yesterday on Zoom, as a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> And, um, you know, I thought, I wonder what Denny's doing, you know, if he's still at his dad's house in L.A. or if he's climbing somewhere and maybe he wants to go to Yosemite for a couple of weeks and, you know, go climbing and I can shake cobwebs webs out of my head and, you know, maybe figure out what I'm going to do next. And so, I, you know, this is you guys that are younger probably wouldn't get this picture, but there were, you know, we had message machines in those days, but there was no mobile phones, cell phones and stuff like that. So I called his dad's house. Nobody answered. I just went out for a walk and then went to sleep. And then the next morning, the very next morning, I hadn't seen my buddy in a, probably two years. And that very next morning, uh, this, my roommate woke, wakes me up and he goes, Hey, Hefe, you know, uh, while you were out walking last night, a friend of yours called and he goes, I, th well, I think his name was Danny or, and I said, Denny. He goes, yeah. And I said, well, what did he say? And he goes, um, he's at his dad's house in L.A. and he wants to know if you want to go climbing in Yosemite for a couple of weeks. And I thought, whoa, that's just those things just don't happen for, you know, they, that's there's a reason for that. So anyway, I called him right up and he miraculously he had just done a whitewater school with Arda um on the rogue and uh, you know on all the, the, the south fork of the american and Tuolumne and stuff and um he was hooked and he wanted to learn how to kayak and uh while they were doing that whitewater school uh another group of disabled uh folks floated by on a river trip uh, with a group called etc etc environmental traveling companions so he was going to volunteer his summer which would have been the summer of 1976 um, to learn how to raft and kayak and work with these guys and take folks with disabilities and kids at risk um, down the river on the Stanislaus, some random river named the Stanny. And, um, and I said, dude, count me in. And so uh, we met um, on the Stanny that April and the rest is history. I love it. You've had like some really um, impactful people come through that really helped change a few directions that needed to happen. 
Oh, yeah. No, I got, I mean, look, everybody works hard and everybody, you know, hopefully has some dream in their life. But I got super lucky because, uh, you know, I got welcomed, welcomed into the crowd. You know, when I was in uh, elementary school and first year or two of high school, I was just, just this fat little Jewish kid, you know, and <laughs> And then, um, you know, certain things happened. I, I played trumpet and I was in the in the rock band playing trumpet, you know, and got introduced to uh, some things there, you know, and of course the typical marijuana and all that stuff. And um, I just kind of found something that I, uh, I was good at and believed in and a whole new crowd. And, you know, uh, I got lucky. And um, I mean, I dropped the drugs when I found uh, the wilderness which was really also lucky. And so, you know, I've been, I've had some great friends and I've been in some awesome places and had some great adventures. And I, I, you know, part of it's hard work and sweat, blood, sweat and tears, but a lot of it's just luck and fate. And I really thank my lucky stars for that. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing that I've noticed about you just being around, not, I mean, we haven't spent much time together, but you're very humble and you're always willing to share and I wonder if that, like being a, that so many people have helped you that, do you think that's also something in you that you want to pass that on? Well, look, you know, it's funny that you say I'm humble and I, and I thank you for that. It almost brings me to tears really. Cause when I was young and first found my oats, I was a cocky little son of a gun, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> and, and there were people that I'm, I'm sure I, I know I turned some people off mm. with that because like for the first time in my life, I was good at something and people appreciated what I was doing and I was into it, you know? And, and so, you know, it's really easy to lose sight of um, who you are and what, what, what really means something in life, which is, you know, love and friendship and all that. And so I kind of got lost for a while and, uh, and uh, I got spanked good for it. And I think, you know, everybody does sooner or later to a certain degree. But um, I, I, I think, you know, again, the great spirit, the lucky stars, whatever you want to call it, fate um, that I did get spanked because I learned a lot of very difficult lessons. And, um, you know, in the end, really, um, it's all about I mean, I was on my deathbed at 26 years old with a super uh, cancer that had spread up in my belly and lungs. And I'd had 10 operations. And I mean, they actually told me I died on the table at one point and they just barely got the right kind of blood for me um, to start my heart up again, right at the last minute and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I think to myself uh, in those last minutes, you know, like before they put me out and when I woke up again, uh, what really, the only thing that I could think of was friends and family. That's all that there is really in your last few seconds, if you get lucky enough to have a few seconds. And so, you know, I got taught some hard lessons, but um, I'm really thankful for everything I've had now, for sure. Well, I can see that, you know, I can see the gratitude there. I didn't know that you almost died and got cancer. And um, I, I mean, so 90s in 76, you were how old? 20? When you first kind of really... Um, I was, yeah, I was, um, I was about... Uh, 21 years old when I first started rafting. Okay. And, um, you know, I was born in 54 in January and stuff. So right in there. And, um, you know, so I had a 44 year career in the end and it wasn't a, like a career. I remember, uh, my, my friend, Suzanne Jordan, who was sort of my mentor as well as uh, a friend. I mean, we went all over the world together 
um, you know, she said, Jeffy, um, I'm not a guy. That's what I do for a living. I'm a boatman. She said, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. My my lovely Alabama friend. So, you know, I totally get that. And, you know, I got like I said, I got lucky. I found my calling and um, and I, I was not only good at it, but I was welcome, welcome into the fold, you know, like early on. And, you know, despite my stumbles and um, I think that's something everybody should remember is, you know, like help each other out because we're all sort of dragging our bag of rocks around with our whole life, you know. Very true. So can you give us a visual of, so you know, you kind of on the river around 21, you kind of uh, gave us some, some foresight into what happened when you were 26, but what was that timeline from 21 to 26 and what was that lifestyle like? And um, where were you at those years? Well, we, um, you know, our home river was the Stanislaus, which is now um, under a reservoir. And they, it was during those years, there was the big fight and Friends of the River was created by Mark Dubois. And I was working first for, um, et cetera, doing the volunteering, doing disabled river trips and kids at risk trips and then learning how to kayak and stuff. And, you know, of course you had to eat. So, um, you know, I, I kind of um, made friends with these, the Arta crowd in Vallecito and um, started guiding with them and kind of never left really. And um, so, you know, it was, we were living in teepees and tree houses and, uh, you know, milking the goats and garden. And, you know, there we are uh, driving to put in every day, you know, just sharing who's rotating, who's doing the river trips. And, you know, there's people, um, you know, the, we were all in fiberglass kayaks and there was, people just kind of taking the new holoform plastic kayaks and we didn't really know what to do with. And they're, they're cutting them down when they fold in half and they all fold in half, of course, but um, they're cutting them down and making shorter kayaks and experimenting with what today is like the norm. And uh, it was just sort of the way I look at it is um, the generation just before me, they were the pioneers, you know, um, Lou Elliott and, um, you know, people like um, George went and those people, they they went out river rafting with junky old army surplus gear and went, wow, we can make a living out of this. Wow, this is really fun. This is really cool. So they were the pioneers and they got those free permits and they just because there were no permits in those days and just started rafting and then came then they needed guides. And so I just happened to be there at the right moment, right place, right time to be in the first generation of professional river guides. So, you know, it was a super cool time. We were just sort of making it up as we went. This is still in California? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, in Vallecito on the Stanny. But, you know, they were they were damming it. And I could see the writing on the wall. I just wanted a boat. You know, I just wanted a kayak and raft. That's all I cared about. And um, I wasn't brave enough really to stick around and, and fight the good fight. And um, that's how I ended up first in Utah on the Colorado river. And then down in the grand Canyon, I didn't want to really well that the fall of the, my first season um, in 1976, uh, a friend of mine came up to me and just said random, you know, just, we're just talking and whatever. And she said, well, I, I'm invited on a grand Canyon trip this fall 
but I don't think I can go because uh, I have I've been uh, invited to go to Africa and I'm not sure if I want to do the Grand Canyon or go to Africa. And I was like, yeah, difficult choice. Yeah, bummer. But um, she ended up choosing Africa. So I got to take her place on a Grand Canyon trip, my first river rafting season. You know, wow. and so um, it was just miraculous that um, it ended up being that. And that was a 37-day private trip with a bunch of the old artifacts. And uh, from there, that point forward, it was, I knew exactly where, you know, I was meant to be. That's when you found the Grand Canyon. Yeah, well, look, I found the Grand Canyon. That's right another you. kind of story. I'm <laughs> I'm always full of stories, but um, when we drove out, when I was graduated high school, 17 years old, when we drove out in the old Pontiac, me and my folks um, on old Route 66 to LA, of course, you have to stop at the Grand Canyon. My dad, typical dad, you know, in those days, you're like, we're not stopping, we're going, you know, we're going to get there, you know, but uh, he had to stop at the Grand Canyon, so uh, we took a little detour and we went up um, from Cameron up that, you know, road to the east entrance to the uh, south rim there. And uh, I remember getting out of the car and, you know, I was bored, teenager, you know, straight out of high school, you know, who cares, just a teenager. And, um, you know, it was a moment in my life. It was just one of those moments. I just walked up to the rim there. I mean, there didn't used to be rails. It was just the Desert View Tower and a dirt parking lot and the rim. And I, I remember walking up to the rim and I just completely lost. I was, I, I couldn't speak, I couldn't move. I was rooted to the spot. And it, it was just like one of the movies, you know, where the whole world universe expanded. And I, I just, I, I, I couldn't move for a long time. I don't know how long I stood there, but eventually I remember hearing my mother's voice somewhere in the background, like, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, are you okay, Jeffrey? You know, and I was like, oh, oh. And uh, so before we left, I remember turning and looking at that unbelievable place and, and pointing my finger at it and going, this is where I'm gonna live, work and play for the rest of my life. And it was it was a commitment, it was, you know, I was going to do it. And so I got lucky and I did. It's almost like a soulmate or a lover. You're like, yeah. And, you know, you know, people ask like, why this river, why this Canyon? But I mean, really it's like, how do you explain, you know, you meet your soulmate and you're like, you can't explain like why it just sort of happens. And that's mm -hmm. what happened. You know, I took my nephew um, last fall to that point. And even have spent, you know, so many years down there and guiding, it was, it like took my breath away. And I just, it was a little yeah. bit cold and there was uh, clouds that brought it in. So it didn't, it really felt like it even zoomed in the canyon, like without the vastness of the sky. And it was incredible. And I remember just being like, wow. And he's like, this is where you work. I'm like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> like way down there. And you know, it, it's incredible. And, and it's really hard to be down there and like close your eyes and look for the first, like, or not hard, but it's hard to, it's easy to get comfortable. And every now and again, you want to close your eyes and look and be like seeing it for the first time. Cause I remember the first time I was just in awe. And I, I, I'd always try and remind myself to go back to that point. Cause it is, that's why guiding is so fun, right? So many people seeing it for the first time and you get those first time jitters every time 
someone says like yeah. this, I mean, this is incredible. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you're like, oh, right. No, it is. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I look, I, I get that totally. I mean, it used to be that pretty much every single person we took down the canyon would say, I have been dreaming of this my whole life. I've been saving for this my whole life. And um, that's a little bit changed. There's still those folks too, but um, it used to be, you, you, it just used to make you feel like, wow, I have a responsibility here. So make it good, you know? Yeah. So when you got invited to that, that private trip, was there a sense of like, oh, I'm going to see you again, Grand Canyon. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to like experience you. Yeah. You know, um, in the first uh, few years, uh, when I was guiding first in on the Stanley in California and then on the Colorado River, but up in Cataract, which, I mean, talk about soulmates with that place. I love that place, too, so much. Um, I, re- I kind of almost didn't even want to work in the Grand Canyon. I-, I wanted to experience it like it was my intimate lover. And I just wanted to explore every nook and cranny and didn't ha- want to have anybody bothering me. I just wanted to get in, you know. And, um, and so for the first few years, I knew I was coming back and I did. I mean, I, I never skipped a year until these last couple of years with COVID. Um, so, uh, you know, I did that for until 1980. Uh, and then by then I'd done, I think, three privates, a uh, couple of 37 days and a 45 day back when you could do that. And um, at that point, I felt, okay. I'm ready now. I'm ready to to dive in and get to work and start sharing this. I've learned enough and I've been there enough and it's not like a brand new honeymoon and um, I'm I'm ready to do this. So that's when I went to um, applied for a job at um, ASRA and uh, Sharon Hester and Nancy McCleskey and I were vying, three of us were vying for two spots. And that was my first intro to what a cutthroat world it can be in the Grand Canyon. And I was like, we only have two spots and there's three of you. So it was sort of like, you know, a setup really for us to be competing. And we kind of had to, but we really didn't want to because we were all friends and we really loved and respected each other. And we were all great at what we did and stuff. So in the end, it was it was really a kind of a cool thing. In the end, we all got together and said, no, we're walking up to the, the management and we're going to tell them we're all good. And we're all we're, we we want three spots, and we're going to share it if that gets that if that's what needs to happen. But we're not going to compete against each other. This is baloney, and that's what they did. And we all got jobs. It was really oh, cool. Oh, that's so cool! I didn't know that. And these two people yeah. came from California, so you guys had worked together. Or did these two come from Utah? Um, I'm not sure where Nancy came from, but Shay Sharon Hester, she still works for Azra to this day, actually, uh, in the office. Um, she was also working um, for Bob Ferguson and uh, on the Stanislaus in Vallecito. So, you know, we sort of evolved and sort of the river was dammed. And so where, where do you go? Well, we came to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Before we go uh, dive into the Grand Canyon, I mean, I live here, Moab and Cataract Canyon. It has a little place in my heart. We're getting married in Cataract Canyon this year. Um, on Brown wow, Betty. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. That's Thank you. Cool. Yeah, we're doing the, the beginning bachelor. rapid and the beginning of a new life. 
Yeah, you'll you'll love this part though. We're gonna do our bachelor and bachelorette parties. I'm gonna do mine on the green, and he's gonna do uh, Alex, my partner, is gonna do his on the Colorado, and we're gonna meet at the confluence with the wedding party. Then we'll, as wow. the wedding party, we'll go to to Brown Betty Beach, set up there, and then friends and family that aren't <laughs> invited to the bachelor and bachelorette parties, they'll get jet boated in to um, you know just before the rapid, and then walk. Uh, like Spanish bottom and then walk the rest of the way into yeah. the beach. So it's going to be really exciting. Oh, it's on the solstice, June 22nd. That, oh, that is super <laughs> cool. Great. Congratulations. Yeah, Great. It's, idea. <laughs> thanks. It's really exciting. But who did you work for here? And um, how was your experience working uh, for Catter Canyon and or in Catter Canyon and for the company here? Oh, I loved every second of it. Um, I worked for Arda. Okay. And back when I had a permit down there and um, Suzanne Jordan was my manager and we had some awesome um, adventures together, uh, you know, do, um, in when she was managing there. And, you know, I just sort of showed up and she wanted me to work. And um, that first year that um, I showed up, I'm, I'm trying to think it was it would have been 1978. And um, it was the first high water year after a couple of years of really bad drought for, for a long time. And Cat was at 75,000. And I'm sure you've seen it when it's that big. And it there is nothing. Look, I've done the Zambezi. I've done be the Bio Bio, the Fuda, you name it. I've been doing a lot of big rivers my whole life. There is nothing bigger or scarier on earth, really. And uh, so she they didn't have enough boats you know like all the boats we had were all ratty you know like been in the desert for 100 years just crazy so she wanted to put me on but she didn't have another snout boat and i said well i'll just row an 18 foot spirit who cares and she was like jeff and nobody's ever rode an 18 foot boat at this water level before <laughs> you know and i was like no i i think i can do that this you know really I, um you know let me do it and uh i remember jimbo tishner um, said, yeah, he can do it, you know, and Susie goes, I don't want to, die. I don't want that responsibility. Are y'all going to die? <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately she let me go. And, uh, um, long story short, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, cause I never did the research, but I think I was the first person to ever row an 18 foot boat at 75,000 through cat. Congratulations. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah crazy and i remember rowing downstream my guts out to get up and over the claw uh but i did yeah <laughs> anyway yeah those were the days but i didn't i didn't die anyway <laughs> and you had clean runs yeah. huh yeah and look i loved cat high or low water i mean my heart still lays there in a, a lot of ways i mean we discovered a lot of ruins and a lot of artifacts and then we did some great um hikes as you know you, there, there is and i mean we baked our brains out i still think it's hotter than the grand canyon but um yeah it's wow it's magic down there too yes yes to all those things and i do think it is hotter than the grand canyon <laughs> it's so hot um yeah. so congratulations 1978 that's that's a feat that will go down in the books for sure. I'll put that in the show notes, all highlighted and bolded. So, <laughs> but so two years later, you're like, okay, Grand Canyon, I'm, I'm ready. 1980 comes yeah. around and you're like, 
Um, and then you get in with those, those two other ladies work for Arda or Azra for how many years did you work for them? Um, I worked for Azra, let's see, would have been till 87. So about seven years, seven seasons. And then, um, a good friend of mine, uh, you know, random again, just, uh, uh, how did, how did this happen? He, uh, guard Dubois, he was rowing. Um, he had rode, he was rowing in the grand Canyon in the late sixties. So he was one of the early, uh, original boatmen there. And then, uh, he had a bit of an episode as you do, you know, it was just, a it was too much and the power was too much. And he ended up, um, walking out of a trip, was leading the trip and he ended up walking out of it. Uh, at Phantom and they had to replace him in the middle of the trip but uh, it was just it was just one of those moments for him but anyway many years later he decided he wanted to come back and he came back and I had Winnie's Natural Foods and I needed some uh, carpentry done in it so um, you know he came out to do some woodwork and then he started working for WeWo again <laughs> in the Grand Canyon and uh, uh, at right when WeWo was going to be sold he was rowing a trip, uh, and on that trip was Edie Schneewind, who ended up right buying Can, Can uh, Wewo and turning it into Canyon Explorations. And um, he was just sort of talking to a couple of the clients above lava and the flat, you know, and the class two stuff about wow, how cool would it be if a boatman owned a Grand Canyon River trip and you know river company and we could do it, you know, the way that boatmen would do it and blah 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 and. These people said, well, talk to her. She's got millions of dollars and, you know, she's just inherited and she doesn't know what to do with her life. And so they switched boats and they ran lava together. And by the, in the tail waves, they shook hands. Edie was going to buy the company and give Gar half of it. So, um, you know, it was like, wow, are you kidding? That's some tip. But anyway, uh, he started, they started this new company, CanX, and they didn't have a uh, anybody to manage it, you know, so they, I managed for them their first year and kind of helped put things together. And that was very epic and extremely stressful. But, um, so I went from, uh, Azra to CanX, uh, to help them manage and put this company together. And then, um, I got it for them for a couple of years. And then, and then I got slapped down with, uh, Guillaume-Barre syndrome. So I, I missed a, a year of my life really um in 89 with um what they call french polio and uh that's a whole nother story which you don't want to bore your readers with but it was pretty epic um but uh, luckily it was it goes away and so i came back and then um went right back basically to azra and i spent another few years working for azra the early 90s and um and then you know about 92 or 3 um, I, uh, we owned, I owned a building downtown, uh, the, the Vale building, which was the second oldest building. It's right across from what used to be Joe's bar, Joe's, um, yeah, bar on the corner of route 66 on San Francisco street, right across from the Amtrak station. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, you know, started a, a, an organization to try to help clean up downtown. Cause in those days, downtown Flagstaff was a, a real pit and um all the old buildings were stuccoed over and all the old beautiful windows were covered in plywood and the, the beautiful tin ceilings were covered in plasterboard you know i mean it was just 
you know, there were knife fights every night and drunks and people sleeping on the sidewalks. It was it was pretty nasty, but that's a whole nother story. But I mean, basically, I started an organization called the Main Street Foundation and the um, downtown Flagstaff Merchants Association. And, um, you know, we spent several years, about six years doing the historic restoration of the downtown, which is what you see now. It's just beautiful now, really roaring success. Um, so I kind of cut back for those few years um, in guiding. I did a little bit of guiding, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't obviously get away from for much time at all for those few years. But um, that was a success. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, uh, I'm looking at a lot of the old time guides that have been doing it, you know, since even before me. And uh you know, when they were getting to a certain age, retirement age, maybe they were, you know, couldn't quite keep up with the young bucks anymore, or, you know, they had a bad back or what have you. I mean, here we are young and strong and, you know, rip roaring and uh, weren't not really thinking about what was going to happen when that came. And so I, I looked at him and I thought, no, I don't want to be living under a bridge. You know, I, I mean, I know what I, I meant to do and I love it, but, you know, I got to be thinking about my future. So, you know, I bought a natural food store and just got into all that. And um, whilst I was guiding a little bit, but not as much in those years. So, you know, I got lucky and um, we uh, created a nest egg and that's kind of what saved us from, um um, an ugly fate financially, I suppose. Um, and I'm probably got way lost in telling stories there, but anyway, um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> well, you, you were smart. Like some guides just go all in, right. They go all into scenes don't work spring, fall or summer, winter, summer, winter, uh, moving from, you know, North America to South America, or even over into, um, you know, Africa, Zambezi, um, and you, you did, you saw it as a different approach where you're like, I, I need this thing that can, I can rely on when my body breaks down. And some people don't necessarily want to face that, but you did. And it sounds like it was, it came back and, and was worthwhile for you. Yeah. Well, again, you know, I know a lot of people that have worked their bums off their whole mm -hmm. lives and, um, you know, ended up with not much. So you know, there's a, a lot of luck and, you know, and fate in, involved as well. But having said that, I did see, you know, like some of my older mentors, you know, like Dave Edwards and Bob Melville and um, Don uh, Briggs and people, you know, they were older in the next generation. And I was thinking, boy, they're, they're going through it right now. I, I don't want to do that. And so, you know, I had to spend a couple of years right in the prime of my career. I mean, I was in my thirties and rip roaring, but, um, I, I had to do a set myself up basically. And so people thought I was nuts, but, you know, I, I still had my hand in. And then when I finished with that, um, you know, I went back to work. Um, and, uh, by then I'd met my wife and, um, you know, we were starting to build our place in Australia cause she's from Australia and missed it. And so, uh, when my, we took care of my dad, for a while after a stroke for a couple of years until he passed away. And then she said, well, my folks are still alive. I miss home. Um, let's move to Australia. And I said, yep. So we sold everything we own and moved here, but I'd go back for half the year every year and work the season um, back 
um, back in the States. And at that point, it was interesting because, you know, you will find some lots of people that say, oh, I don't want to be burned out. I'm not going to keep working if I'm burned out. Uh, you know, if I find myself in that position, I'm going to I'm going to go do something else. But boy, I'm telling you, that's hard. <laughs> that's really, really, really hard to leave what you were meant to be and do uh, because you're feeling burned out. Um, and not a lot of people are successful at that. But um, I remember being a little bit burned out um, at, at that point with the Grand Canyon and thinking, yeah, you know, I need something different. Um, so uh, I got offered a, a job to manage um, a river company up on, on the Middle Fork in Idaho. So I thought, oh, well, that'll be good. You know, I'll get to the Middle Fork a little bit and uh, manage a river company and uh, and sort of get away and clear the cobwebs again. So that's what I did. And, you know, we we were building our place for half the year. It was pretty epic and flying around the world and coming back and working in the summers. And But in those, uh, back then in 03, we had a two and a half million acre forest fire come through, like right through our place. There's a video of Australia on YouTube. Yep. And, uh, you know, we live on a river and we, I was working rivers here um, but when those fires came through, the world was black for years. So we spent a little more time over there in Idaho um, in those few years. And I was happy, you know, I was doing, I missed the Grand Canyon, but I was still doing private trips and it was fine. And we were, we were just cruising along doing what we were doing and building a house on 12 acres on a river in the middle of nowhere is epic. So, you know, our lives were full. Um <laughs> And then I did a, a, a Middle Fork trip with a guy um, who had a lot of money, shall we say. He, he, he chartered a trip and paid for everybody on the trip, friends and family on the Middle Fork. And uh, we had a really great time together. And this would have been, oh gosh, now we're talking 04, 05-ish. And I'd been not working as a guide in the Grand Canyon for about a dozen years. So I had a dozen years of working in the Grand Canyon. And then I had a dozen years where I just did private trips and didn't really work it and was doing other things, but still working rivers elsewhere. And that was fine at the, at the time. And then uh, we got off that trip and he goes, Hefe, what's next? <laughs> and I said, well, if you really loved this river trip, like obviously you did, then what's obviously what's next is doing going, doing the Grand Canyon in a dory, for sure. You just got to do that. Sorry, buddy. And he said, well, we're not doing without you. And I said, well, I'm not working down there anymore. And I'm kind of, you know, in my dotage. And, you know, I'm the, I mean, it's not like I can just waltz in and do a Grand Canyon river trip. It'd be like walk, walking into the NFL and saying, I want to, you know, be your quarterback, you know. And uh, he said, we're not doing without you. And I said, well, let me give it a shot. So I called Regan Dale, Reg. And uh, I had worked uh, a season for Oars before I left in the 90s. And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I got this charter trip, you know. And he goes, no, come on down, man. We, we got a spot for you. And I thought, well, if they're dumb enough to hire me back, then I guess I'll go back. And uh, we did that trip and had a, I mean, I remembered all the magic and all the power. And I, I just, it just all came roaring back into my soul. And uh, I, we got off that trip and. Rig said, um, F.A., if you want a spot, I got one for you. And so 
that was what I did again for the next 13 years till I retired. You had like these 12 year cycles of like learning and growth, but always remembering the Grand Canyon and coming back in it and being like, oh, right. No, this is what I'm meant to do or when I'm meant to be, even though you needed to tap into other things. So real quick for that private trip, did you row a dory or were you on a raft? The, not private the trip, private sorry, when you trip. came to Oars Dories and you took your oh, the, yeah, the yeah. trip. Um, well, look, uh, and here's another really funny story. I mean, I'm full of stories, so stop me. On, um, <laughs> river, you're a river guy. That's um, what we do. <laughs> it was, yeah, right. It's what we do. Uh, so, you know, all through the 80s in the Grand Canyon, you know, I'm rowing rafts and I'm perfectly happy doing that. I, I mean, it's a wonderful craft. You know, whatever you do, whether you got a cob in your hand and you're on a motor rig or whether you're rowing or paddling, it doesn't matter. You're, you're in the Grand Canyon. Who cares, right? Um, and we'd pass the Dories and Martin Litton and all those guys, you know, and it was sort of kind of funny, you know, because uh, we felt like they had this, their nose in the air, like, you know, we are the coolest shit that ever was, you know, we would just chuckle like, dude, calm down. Okay. You know, we're all in this together. And so it wasn't really anything I needed or wanted to do, but of course, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like people talk about the Grand Canyon who don't work down there. And I've heard so many times over the years, oh man, it's just a canal and oh, just all the rapids are straightforward. Who cares? Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but you give those same people, uh, you offer them a job in the Grand Canyon and you look at their eyes, <laughs> you know, there's something about it beyond the river, beyond the mad, you know, beyond the rapids rather. And uh, nobody would pass that up. Um, but anyway, long story short is, you know, we didn't need a, to row a dory or anything like that, but they're super cool boats. They're beautiful. They're, they look like a lot of fun. You know, you're driving your Lincoln and, uh, and they're driving the Porsche, you know. And um, anyway, uh, I was sitting in my house once in Flagstaff one day in 92, I think it was. And uh, I guess I get a call from Elson Miles and he goes, hey, Hefe, didn't you want a Dory? And I said, well, I mean, yeah, that's kind of a dream. But I mean, I don't have 25 grand to lay down for a Dory. You know, and he goes, there's a pig farmer from Parks out in front of my house and he's got an old Dory on his trailer and he wants to sell it for 800 bucks. And I said, don't let him go anywhere. I'll be right over. On the south side there, it was really funny. And here's this big old fat pig farmer and he's got his overalls on. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was classic. And here's this old dory and the dory is Azra Arda blue, green rather, sorry. It's Arda green. And I thought, I think I recognize that dory. That's one of the dories that... Azra, you know, had in the 90s, and then they got rid of because they kept breaking them. I think that's one of those. And so I looked it over and it, oh my God, it needed a lot of work. But I, you know, I said, I'll offer you 400 bucks. And he, he turns and he spits on the street and he goes, I'll burn it before I sell it for $400. So we made a deal for 600 <laughs> So all of a sudden I had a dory and so I had to fix it and then I had to learn how to row it. So I did that on a bunch of different private trips and, you know, I'd be passing dory trips 
and they'd be expecting me to blow it up, you know, but then they'd go, Whoa, he had a good run. You know, he knows how to row. So, um, it wasn't like it was my dream, but it was, a, it's a beautiful boat and I really loved my Dory. And so, um, when it came to time to do that trip, um, and I think it was like a say, Oh, four or five, right in there somewhere. Um, they gave me a Dory and I rode one of their Dories and, um, yeah, that was it. And that was sort of history from there. So the one that you got from the pig farmer, did you name that? Did you give that yeah, one a name? Uh, it, you're not supposed to rename boats. It's supposed to be bad luck, but this one didn't even seem to have a name. And, um, I didn't know about the, uh, the naming protocols, you know, that the dories have in those days where they name their boats after places that man has destroyed, beautiful natural places. Uh, and um, I used to tell these Sam McGee, sorry, these uh, Robert Service poems, uh, these epic poems about the cremation of Sam McGee and dangerous Dan McGrew and um, for the clients. And just to myself, as I was hiking, I would just recite something to keep keep myself occupied. And so it just seemed to fit. So I just called my boat Sam McGee. Oh, that's awesome. And once you locked in with oars, dories, were you able to bring Sam McGee on trips or did you have to row their dories? No, no, they were happy to have you row um, a dory. I mean, in those days, they would rent your dory for a 17-day Grand Canyon trip for, I think it was 150 bucks or something ridiculous. You know, it was, I mean, an oar costs that, you know. Um, now it's much better, you know, it's 400 or 500, whatever they rent your boat for, but they don't have to fix it when it breaks, you do. So that's, you know, that's the trade-off. But, you know, uh, I did row it a couple times, but the dory boats are, um, one style of boat, um, gosh, my, I'm having a brain fart here. Uh, give me a second. Uh, the Briggs. Briggs, yeah. So the Dory boats, the Dory boats are Briggs boats. And that's a specific style, style that Martin Litton um, came up with, um, with a guy named Briggs who was building drift boats um, on the West Coast. And they decked them over. And then, you know, Martin and a bunch of the old time guides, they worked in, uh, on changing the, this, you know, the chine a little bit or the rocker a little bit or the length a little bit over the years and came up with the Briggs boat, what we see today. And mine is a, um, a, a Lavro boat. So it's a, a bit of a different shape and a bit of a different style. Uh, but it's not traditional. So I kind of kept it under wraps for a while, but then I thought, well, you know, it's my boat. I love it. I, I can row it and I know it real well. And so over the years I've, you know, that 600 boat has probably got well over 20 grand into it, you know, over the years and repairs and maintenance and upgrades. But, you know, in the end, that's who, that's what I was rowing. It was my Lavro Sam McGee. And it's a real fun boat. I love it. Yeah. Well, and you've had really good runs in it, the ones that I've seen, anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like everybody, uh, it's it's just a matter of time until you flip. There's those that have flipped and those that are uh, going to flip and those that haven't flipped and those that are going to flip. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, it was, that's like Lava Falls used to be, I didn't, didn't even used to think much about Lava Falls, you know, I mean, it was such a random run, you could have be in the perfect spot and perfect angle and doing everything just exactly right and get completely slammed. And you could uh, 
completely screw the pooch up at the top and not be anywhere near where you wanted to be and have a perfect run. So because of that, you know, I was, I never really worried about it. I figured out, oh, well, it's up to the fates, you know, I, I'll pull off from shore and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, but because I was cocky once, I'm sure that's why this happened. So I had uh, 34 years uh, and 119 trips down the canyon without a flip. And I never really talked about it, um, but it just, that, you know, we count, you know, it's just something we did. So I just knew it inside. And we were scouting lava left once and the, the, a client walked up to me and uh, said, so Hefe, how many times have you flipped? And, you know, I was joking, but the gods didn't take it that way. And I just turned around and said, 119 trips, 34 years, no flips yet. And uh, I remember Scotty Stevens was walking behind me just as I said that. And he goes, well, goddamn, Aronson, you should not have said that. It's so true. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I pulled right out and flipped instantly (laughs) in, in the humpback chub. And I flipped four times in Lava Falls in the next six years. And then, I, and then I think the juju was over with, and um, I finally got through that little um, whatever. And uh, so, you know, and then I got, I, you know, came back to my um, my world again. But yeah, it was pretty funny uh, from saying just one, one cocky statement. Boy, I got spanked pretty good. We're always listening, those river gods and goddesses. <laughs> they are indeed. I want to backtrack a little bit. You, uh, you know, in the beginning, you mentioned a little bit about uh, this pretty hard time that you had when you were 26 um, when you got cancer and died on the table and they brought you back and, um, you know, things changed at that point. So where were you at that time? Because you've kind of gone past that, but backtrack a little bit and talk a little bit about um, that experience and uh, how it changed you of, uh, as a guide, if any. Mm, yeah, sure. Uh, so when I was 25, um, you know, would have been 79. Um, my mother had cancer and I was off being a, a man, you know, being a young lad, you know, I was mountaineering in the Tetons. And I mean, I was pretty clueless and pretty selfish, I think in those days, I suppose. And, you know, I really didn't get it for a long time that my mother had cancer and she was, you know, in those days, it was a death sentence almost every time she had um, aplastic anemia, bone marrow cancer. Anyway, um, I finally picked that up and I got it. And thank, I just thank my lucky stars. You know, we had some really beautiful moments together in her last year. And, um, you know, it was beautiful, beautiful. But in the end, um, you know, she died in my arms in the middle of the night in a hospital room in Los Angeles. And when I was 25 and she was 56. So, you know, that really shook me. And uh, I had a real tough time. And I kind of felt like I needed to hold my family together. So uh, whether that's true or not, I mean, I'm to the, I took responsibility for that. And so it was a real tough year for me. And, um, you know, I believe, you know, there's a lot of people that think, you know, stress can cause cancer. Um, I, I think there's a good stress. And I think there's a bad stress. And the bad stress you know, the good stress is like you're working towards something and you're trying to achieve a goal or, you know, you're that that can be a good stress. 
Um, but when you feel like you can't escape and, you know, there's an albatross around your neck and it's like the end of the world and there's no, no getting out of it, that's not a good stress. And so, you know, my mother died and I was in a relationship that, with a person who was uh, borderline personality. And heck, in those days, we were in our 20s. We didn't know what that meant, you know, but it was really a hard year for me. Long story short is, um, you know, I had a hard, sore, lumpy testicle and um, I was trying to, um, I needed to just go down the river. And so I had a plan um, that year to stick, escape everything, left my teepee. I was living in uh, the, on the et cetera land uh, just outside of Alicito, just outside of Angels Camp in California. And uh, I just had to leave it all to say goodbye. And um, a friend of mine, Susan Brooks Havasu, uh, is her nickname and uh, George Wright um, January we used to nickname him he used to work for uh, Arda um, we planned a, a a trip that was going to go from the Yampa down through Split Mountain you know all the way down through Cat and uh, and just keep on going all the way down through the Grand Canyon we we're just going to make it all happen um, and so we uh you know, I said, ah, you know, I should get this testicle checked out on the, you know, on our put-in, you know, day. And um, we happened to be going through Moab, as a matter of fact. Uh, and we were looking for a shuttle driver and we're heading up for the Yampa. And uh, I just went through a little um, yellow pages uh, to find a urologist, you know, uh, just, you know, give me a check and then I can go on my river trip. And so we found one. We, there wasn't one in Moab in those days. And we found one in uh, Grand Junction randomly from the Yellow Pages. And um, it was a Friday, I think it was. And call them up and they said, OK, we'll give you an appointment for next week. But I was I sort of was at the end of my rope and I just I was kind of, you know, pushy. And I just said, look, if it can't happen this afternoon on our way through Grand Junction, it ain't happening. We'll wait for 45 days. And so the receptionist goes, well, hang on just a second. So she comes back and goes, Dr. Roy will see you if you come in, if you make it, you know, here by five. So five o'clock on a Friday, we show up in Grand Junction and um, he does some tests and stuff. And uh, he said, I need you to uh, get a, a, I think it was an echo or some kind of a test where they can uh, actually a radiological test. So they were going to inject me with some dye and then check the flow of blood through that testicle that was lumpy. And uh, he said, I can schedule you for next Monday or Tuesday. I said, no, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm going on a river trip. I'll just do the test in 45 days. And so he goes, hang on a minute <laughs> and disappears. He called one of the techies on a Friday evening to come into St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction for some strange guy who had long hair and was kind of belligerent to do this test. I mean, the guy saved my life. And uh, so I went in and they did the test and and uh, the, the, the your radiologist said, oh, it looks all good to me. It looks like a good flow. You're probably gonna, you know, gonna go on your river trip and blah, blah, blah. And so I told that to Dr. Roy when he shows up and he goes, no, that's not good. It doesn't, it means, it has to be probably cancer because, or he said it has to be a tumor if the flu, if the uh, fl uh, blood flow is good. Um, so we needed, you know, get you into surgery and have a look at it. 
<laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I didn't really connect tumor with cancer still. I mean, you know, you're 20 years old, 21 years old. So he said, I can get you in surgery next week. And I was just, yeah, again, I was like, no, nah, sorry, buddy. We're not doing that. So he actually slotted me in for the next day, Saturday at noon on his lunch hour to, to have a look. And so we drove all the way up to the put-in in the Ampa and dumped all the gear and my friends and at the put-in. And then this gal that we found uh, to do the shuttle drove me all the way back in before noon on the Saturday. And I jumped in the shower and I went into surgery. First surgery. I mean, I was a hero. I, there was no putting me down, you know, so no connection with what surgery meant. Anyway, I remember waking up the next, uh, well, and a couple hours later, it must have been, and and I'm, I'm like, whoa, my, it's not my scrotum that's hurting, it's my uh, groin. What happened? And I felt down, and apparently they have to slit your groin like where you have a hernia normally, and uh, you know, and then they go down in from there. And I, it never really had occurred to me, and I kind of felt down there, and I thought, okay keep going. So I kept going and yep, it was missing. And then it, at that very moment, I noticed that there was a guy next to me and he was in what we call chain Stokes breathing, which is like what you, you know, the last breathing you have before you pass away when you're, especially when you're really old. And I looked over and I thought, this does not compute. You know, I'm in a room where really sick people are. And then at that moment, it was, it was really perfection. Um, a nun sticks her head in the door. <laughs> and she goes, can I help you, my son? And at that moment, I clicked. I was like, oh, there's something going on here. I said, no, thanks. I'm Jewish and I'm not Catholic, but thanks very much for the offer. And she goes away. And then they told me I had cancer. And that was the beginning of that thing. So um yeah it was pretty epic but um yeah but i went back to california uh that they it spread into my belly and lungs and i went back to cat and worked cat that whole season really um, um because i figured well if i'm gonna die i might as well do what i love what you know in my last year of life and then um went back to california for a little bit but on the way stopped for a test and they found a lump in my lung and it was on from there. So, yeah. Did you do that private trip? Did you end up going no, out and doing uh, that? No, we didn't. I, uh, somehow, you know, there's no cell phones in those days. So what happened? Oh, I remember. Um, I had uh, the gal that did the shuttle. No, no, we were just sitting there in the room. She stuck with me and uh, they called they realized that I wasn't there I didn't show up at the put-in like I was supposed to and there was a car there parked from somebody else doing the Yampa and they felt around the bumpers and found a set of keys you know they're in the middle of nowhere in the desert and they drove kind of stole borrowed this car to the nearest uh phone booth in the nearest town and they called me in the hospital. I said, sorry, guys, I'm not coming. You go do the trip yourselves. But they didn't. They just packed everything up and that was it. They didn't do the trip. No, they didn't. But I got to do it years later, about 10 years later, actually. I did it with some other friends. But no, the, the guy had had his mother had just died of cancer as well. 
And he, it just, it brought up too much for him. So they just canceled the trip. That's interesting. Like that sometimes the river's like, nope, not this time, not for all y'all, you know, and you guys were able to do it 10 years later. Um, I believe in that kind of stuff. It's, you know, timing and meant to be and, and all that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's, that's what life's all about, huh? Like John Lennon said in the song, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So in that year, you said, you know, you had a year, they, they claimed this was going to be your last year and you got to the table and you'd mentioned that, um, there were some things to bring you back to life. Like what, uh, what was it that saved you? And, um, once you were brought back to life, was there anything, uh, what's, what's the word? Like, was there anything else you had to do to overcome or just was it, was it all in that moment? Can you just describe a little bit about that experience? Yeah. Well, look, uh, things like cancer don't be, don't get real until you're in chemo and having surgeries and living in the hospital and, and all that. So I went through, I've been through about 10 surgeries now, pretty much all as a result of that. Um, but in that year, I think I had four or five major surgeries. They took half my left lung out. They took all my lymph nodes out. They took my right testicle out. They had to resect my belly twice, uh, my intestines, because they kinked my bowel. And I mean, it was pretty epic. Um, and then I did five months of the worst chemo cocktail that they ever came, that ever was invented. Um, and so you know, uh, it, it was, it was pretty epic year and I didn't know if I was going to live or not. And it was pretty traumatizing for years after that. But, you know, it, at the same time, if you survive, I mean, I remember laying there feeling like after my fourth or fifth surgery and chemo and everything, and I probably weighed 120 pounds and my skin was green and I had no hair and I mean, it was pretty pathetic tubes up my nose. And I remember, um, this gal was sitting there with me and she in the hospital room and she goes, wow, this must be a real life lesson, you know? And I remember thinking, what, <laughs> you know, lesson implies you're going to be around to have learned something and grown from it. And I might not be really, but anyway, uh, I got lucky and I came out the other end and really, uh, it was, it was, I mean, those surgeries that took it out and the chemo that knocked it down like two years before I got it pretty much everybody died of testicular. Um, but the year before I got it, this guy named Einhorn came up with this chemo cocktail that was starting to save people. And it was, you know, I think it, when I had it, it was about 75% effective. And I think it's even more so now. But, you know, uh, I think what caused it is, you know, just drinking toluene, you know, like we used to just, no, no, gloves, no masks. We used to just fix boats and drink beer. And um, I bet I know seven guides, other river guides that have had testicular cancer or something like, you know, gonad cancers. So yeah, it's pretty intense. So be careful. <laughs> Wear your PPE for sure. But anyway, I got lucky, got out of it. So hmm. yeah, like you're, you're just in a little four leaf clover. <laughs> a little lucky, lucky charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I've I've had more than seven lives go through go past me. So yeah. yeah. Well, I had no idea of of just the the challenges and just the many experiences and the ins and outs of the river. I thought you were pretty consistent, but it's kind of nice to hear that you you veered away 
but always came back. I feel like that's kind of what I've been doing. And it's, it's really hard because when I go away from it, I'm like, why? Like nothing else really makes sense. And I don't usually feel like I'm in my, my strength or my power, like my, especially my voice. And I want to get back to the river. It's like, oh, it all just, it all comes back. And um, the confidence is there and uh, you know, the purpose and the passion and just like the fulfillment and the joy and the, and the exhaustion at the end of the day and feeling so rewarded and just can't get that anywhere else. I think once you experience that as a river guide, it's, <laughs> it's addicting. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you don't really know, um, you know, what home means to you until you leave it. And then mm-hmm. you, and then, you know, and then that hopefully you get back. Yeah. And uh, I want to respect your time uh, just to kind of starting to wrap it up. I mean, you spent a lot of time uh, working on and off the river and you decided to hang up the oars uh, or, or what, what's the, what, what's the saying? Is it hang up the oars? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had to give up my, who I am really. I mean, mm. I, uh, it really, it wasn't easy, boy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, but yeah, I did. So, and I mean, it, on a certain level, again, it was, it was hard, but lucky, just like all these other things that have happened in my life. Um, you know, it was 2019. So, I mean, 2020 was when COVID hit and heck, I would have been stuck with my wife over, you know, in, uh, in the States, uh, on the other side of the planet from our home. And that wouldn't have been good. And, you know, half that season in 2020 was gone anyway. Um, but I mean, look, I, you know, you look at you know, Michael Jordan and Brett Favre, you know, you're like, yeah, quit when you're ahead. And then, but then they came back once or twice or 10 times or whatever, you know? So it's just testament to how difficult it is to leave what you were meant to be. But, um, you know, I was watching some of the older, um, generation and, and, um, I really did not want to become a laughing stock. I did not want to become one of the guys that, people that were holding everybody back, my pards, my colleagues, because that's what it's all about, really. And, um, you know, I've had some people, it was, it's been beautiful. Some people said, no, you're not ready to go. You know, you're not holding us back. You're not that type of guy. You know, we love you. Keep, keep going. But, you know, something was telling me, no, quit while you're ahead um, and, uh, and, and move on. You know, everything ends. So do it on your own terms. So I did. And I was damn lucky because um, that fall, um, I was guiding a Mongolia trip um, with some Wars clients and some other clients from a guy from here in Australia. And I just wasn't on top of it, you know, like I was having struggle, tr- struggling, climbing the mountains and paddling all day long and canoes and just sort of just didn't feel right. And uh, came back and course I had schistosomiasis so that didn't help but got that get rid of that and it was like oh yes I'm still not feeling quite right you know I'm just not myself so finally long story short is they did a blood test and they found I had leukemia so <laughs> so strike three you know oh <laughs> in fall of 2019 wow yeah so another, I told my wife when I first met her that I was never going to do chemo again, as long as I lived, I'd rather be dead. But, you know, times have changed. The chemo is a little bit more, you, you know, you can cope with it a little bit more and they, they know how to do it a little bit better. So it wasn't quite as bad. And now I'm on a pill a day and it's a, a CML. So it's a kind that 
can be chronic with the right medication, which is what I'm doing. So, you know, I'm a little lethargic and I mean, it is what it is. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm lucky that it was the kind that I, that it is CML. Um, but it is leukemia and it does affect me. So there's another reason why, you know, it's lucky when I quit when I did, because now, I mean, I could, I can still row a boat, but there's no way I can keep up with, you know, what I need to do to be a good river guide. So, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. So what is on the horizon line for you now, as you shift into the next you know phase of your life and especially with your partner and being over in Australia? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm lucky I met her and um, I proposed to her in the tongue of Crystal Rapids. I do um, remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, she is my rock and it's been really wonderful. And, you know, like like with everybody, you know, you have your moments, but um, you get through those moments because of your love. And, um, you know, we we have that in spades. So we're lucky. And you know, everybody thought we were crazy for buying this extremely remote bush block, they call it out here, um, that was super overgrown, but it, and it was rocky and steep, but we're right on the best river on the, uh, sorry, the best rapid on the Bundara River. It's a beautiful little river and, you know, nobody paddled it back when we bought the place, but now, you know, there's missions, people are paddling, kayaking by our house you know, 60 yards below our house uh, all spring long while the river's flowing. So that's super cool. And, you know, we have what everybody now describes as paradise. They thought they thought we were idiots for buying it back then, but they don't think so no more. So, you know, we've got a great community of people here, paddlers, probably the largest paddling community in all of Australia. And you wouldn't think Australia, the desert country, you know, rivers. No, sorry. But you know, there's four rivers out here that are paddleable. And if you expand to another couple hours further out, there's even more. And uh, we're in the mountains and uh, the community is about 4,000 strong. And I started a group called the Friends of the Middah. And we've been doing um, put-ins and takeouts and ramps and river maps. And we have a, a, a great new website. We just got a grant to complete, which we did, um, called friendsofthemidah.org. And uh, we have like a citizen science website. I mean, you're in the Grand Canyon, you got a thousand books on every subject you can imagine on interp stuff, but here it almost was non-existent. So it's taken a few years, but now we have a, a great resource for all the school groups and camps and clubs that come out here and paddle together. It's kind of a different scene than in the States where you're guided in commercial outfitting. It's mostly schools and clubs and that sort of thing, journeys. Um, but it's really great. We got a great community. We have a party here every um, uh, every September, which is our spring, not our fall. And uh, every, all the paddlers come out and we have burritos and live music and silent auctions and everybody parties. It's a really super cool community. So we're still involved on the river. And it's really great. <laughs> I love that. I'll make sure and share that in the show notes. The friends of the meta.org. How do you spell meta? Yeah. M-I-T-T-A. Am I double TA? Okay, cool. I'll make sure and put that in there and, and all the links to uh, supporting that. Um, is there like a GoFundMe or a page where you can donate? Um, yeah, in the upper right corner is a little yellow donate button on our Friends of the Middle page. And so um, 
if, if people wanted to donate, uh, we got a lot of cool projects coming up, like take out ramps on the mighty Snowy River, you know, the man from Snowy River. That's just over the mountain from us. And we do that all the time. So, um, yeah, we've got a lot of cool projects going on with the Park Service here. So, um, yeah, great to have people donate. And I haven't really kept my personal page website up much um, lately, but my retirement story is on that front and center. So if people wanted to read that. It was in the Boatman's Quarterly years ago, a few years ago now, two and a half years ago. But it's the first story. Uh, that comes up on the main homepage of my website, which, like I said, it's got a bunch of videos and stuff, but I haven't even worked on it for years. But um, yeah, that story's up there. Okay, I'll make sure and put your your site on there too, and links to watching some of the fun videos. Like your 1983, uh, isn't it like a two part um, video? I watched that; it's great. You, you found so much footage. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was everything I could find. And we searched high and low. I mean, I sent out letters and they advertised it in the Moments Quarterly Review. And um, I met people and they met new people who had, you know, footage and people who were clients just randomly saw that video and offered more footage. So there's an older version and a newer version. And the newer version is the one you want to see. But (laughs) it's everything that I could find over years and years of trying. So yeah, that's a great video. I think it's on in one part on Vimeo, but nobody goes there really. So <laughs> not uh, anymore. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. new version on YouTube is, is a good one. And you know, that one, plus there's a, uh, like a 20 minute video of me and a bunch of other people playing music on the, in the, on the river uh, that's on YouTube. Okay. You know, it's like little bits and pieces, but it's kind of fun to watch, you know, it's, because music was really what um, I had to share with people. So yeah, and you were amazing at it. One of one of the episodes that I've um, shared is just like forty minutes of music in Blacktail. Uh, it's like episode I don't know twenty five or something, and so it's just a whole you know hour of just listening to guides rant and <laughs> and rave and, yeah. and uh, banter, talk about how tired we are because we just rode through the wind. <laughs> Yeah, and then we're performing yeah. for everybody. <laughs> well, you know, something I say in my story, in my retirement story, is you know everybody. I mean, you, we can didn't really complain, but we noted how hard the work was and how exhausting it was and how it was just ruining our bodies. But while we were doing that, there was a bit of a smile on our faces. You know, like we were sharing the toil. We were comrades in arms and. You know, there was people would say, you know, that's really hard work, but they also recognized what a beautiful bond that created. Absolutely. Every trip, especially the the ones that suck, that's a, that's a deeper bond. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, a well, the, there's a bond when, when you're suffering. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, I always like used to say the worst day on a on a on the river is better than the best day anywhere else. <laughs> yes, true that. Well, as we start to wrap things up, um, I would love for, since you spent so many, I mean, in the end, how many years were you a guide? Um, I guided professionally um, for 44 years. This will be my 45th season and I'm still teaching swift water rescue and, you know, taking people down in Australia, but I, I wouldn't really kind of call myself a commercial guide anymore, really. So 44 years. Yep. 
Okay. So someone who's listening to this, that's just like, whoa, I'm in my first year, like 44 more years of this, but they're intrigued and they're, you know, you've caught their ear. Uh, What advice would you have for, you know, a new year, newbie guide one to two, maybe three, third year guide, just in someone that wants to make it their career? Like what sort of advice do you have for them? Uh, Could be a few things or just one thing. Well, look, um, you know, one thing is you really can't do this job without some ego. I mean, you you know, like even if you didn't have it, you know, like you're people are amazed at what you do all the time and stuff. And so, you know, we have to be front and center and entertaining and taking people on these, you know, mega hikes and stuff. So it's it's not like you can't have an ego, but it's how you manage it. And, um, you know walking yourself through that in the beginning, um, that that's definitely, um, a challenge, I think to be met. Um, and then another thing is, um, you know, like we all, as you just, we just talked about, we all get scared we get stressed, you know, your lava falls is coming up or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's 125 degrees out and I need to drink water or, you know, it's pouring rain and hailing and, you know, people are running around crying, whatever. Um, and I, you know, it, it took me a while, but I finally figured out, you know, if I'm a little bit stressed, if I'm a little bit tired, if I'm a little bit grumpy, everybody else is too. So just, you know, just remember that. And then the whole world falls into place. If you go, you know, they're kind of stressed too. We're, we're about to pull into the tongue and hands. Everybody, you know, like if, you, if you're not just a little bit nervous, you don't appreciate the situation, you know? <laughs> <laughs> situation, I love that. <laughs> so, you know, those two things, but I mean, really to make a career out of it, um, not everybody's, um, you know, that's not everybody's goal. Not everybody's cut out to do that, but you know, listen to yourself and listen to your parts and watch their eyes, even if nobody's willing to actually say the words. And, you know, if you need to, if you're burned and you're, you need to take a break, if you're not like they're 120%, which is what this job requires, um, time to take a break and it's okay. It'll be there waiting for you. Uh, and if it, if you're not there, well, it doesn't matter much, does it? So, you know, <laughs> nope. uh, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. I I agree. It's uh it is a sense of putting your own just all your own personal things aside and having to play the part even when inside you're just like, I don't got this. I ain't got this. I don't have this, you know, and like you can work yourself up and you know, in your face you're like, oh yeah, we're totally fine. And in the back of your head, you're like, fuck. <laughs> we're not yeah. you know, and and yeah. but it's it being able to just swallow that. And then at the end of the, you know, after the rapid or whatnot, you're just like, wow, no, I did it. And it's always the sense of like, no, I do have this. Why do I do that to myself? Why do I like think that you know, it's like some sort of um, imposter syndrome? Like I'm out here rowing a boat I shouldn't be rowing. And and it's some weird stuff yeah. that happens mentally, but I always love that feeling afterwards when you're like, no, I, I do have this. I need to trust myself until the next rapid where you're like, I don't have this. <laughs> And it's just yeah. like leapfrogging well, that. <laughs> I don't know if it's even about having it. I mean, really, it's about accepting we're all human. And mm-hmm. that's what, to me, the camaraderie, when, you, when people say camaraderie, I mean, the camaraderie is really about when the shit's hitting the fan and you're still loving each other and helping each other through it. 
uh, to get downstream into the tail waves. That's the key, really. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, as we start to wrap it up, I think I've said that like three times. <laughs> uh, one thing, this is airing after your birthday, but happy belated birthday to you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we didn't really get to talk about your wife much, but Carrie, her name is Carrie. And uh, yep. I, when I was working for Oars on the Yampa, I ended up having a a relationship with her. We, she came on, on a trip and we got to know each other and she's just fantastic. And she's a great human, has a great accent, you know, Aussie accent, I think is the sexiest accent. (laughs) I could listen to her all day, (laughs) Um, but she's wise, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, One quick thing, (laughs) one question, like what, what, what do you want the world to know about Carrie? Um, And yeah, congratulations on, on finding an amazing partner. Yeah, well, we're, we'll be 30 years together in a couple of months here. Um, hmm. You know, uh, she's got a big, huge heart. And I can be Mr. Grum- Grumbly Bum, you know, sometimes and kind of selfish with my time and space and stuff. But, you know, she welcomes everybody into our home. I mean, we call it the confluence and there's a reason for it. And that's pretty much her, you know. We're super remote and uh, 17 people live within a half an hour's drive. I mean, really? Um, and, uh, but we rarely go through a day without some visitors. And I, I think that's because of her and her huge heart. And, you know, I thank my lucky stars that she's, um, been understanding and accepting because I got a huge personality and sometimes it boils over a little bit too much and just part of my tribe, I guess. But, um, she helps me calm down and, uh, and she loves me and, uh, boy, nothing more important. She's my rock. We'll tell her hello and congratulations. She's an amazing rock. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And before I ask the last question, I just want to take a second to acknowledge you, Hefe, um, acknowledge just the, the feats that you've overcome, um, the lessons you've learned, the people, along the way that have, you know, changed the course of, of your life and, and being able to say yes to change. Yes. To, um, you know, saying yes to something that you had no idea what the outcome would be, uh, but listening to your heart and, uh, but also like, it was interesting when you were talking about being, you know, in that surgery room and looking around and being like, oh, like you're, you have this sense of, of faith, but not, you know, religious, just like that. It's, it's all going to work out even when you're sitting in the, you know, and and on the, on the, on a bed next to someone who's about to pass away, you, you always have this sense of um, not yet, you know, and I appreciate uh, all the, all the things you've done for like just the history of the Grand Canyon, all the publications you've, you've written and the videos you've edited and just the impact you've made on not only me, but all the other river guides in the Grand Canyon and, and beyond. Well, thanks. It's, it's good to be part of a tribe and I'm, I'm glad I found you. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and it's really good to see you. And it was really nice to sit down. It's been a long time and uh, yeah, you still look the same. <laughs> How is that possible? Still <laughs> same stash, the Yosemite Sam stash and you just look very vibrant and, and that's, you know, attributed to the river and the lifestyle we've lived for so many years. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, I, there's days I feel a hundred and there's days I feel 20. So right now I'm feeling 20. So, you know, soak it up. All right. Good on you. <laughs> All right. Last question, Hefe. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned from the river? 
Yeah, you know, uh, that's a hard one, really, uh, to put into words. Um, but, you know, you, you stand there when the sun's setting uh, in the Grand Canyon and uh, or anywhere on any river, on any riverbank, anywhere, really. And uh, you watch the light change and, you know, the, the reflections off the water and you hear that that beautiful sound that all rivers make as it's flowing by. And, uh, you know, you think, wow, I don't need anything else. It's just, this is it. And, um, you know, to be able to share that with friends and family and, I mean, new friends, their clients, quote unquote, peeps, whatever. But I mean, we become brothers and sisters and uh, when we're down there. And it's, that to me is something I will, cherish until the day I die. Thank you. Well, it's always good to see you. Thanks again for coming on the show and sharing all this with us. Cheers to big hits and clean runs downstream. Good to see you. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, make sure and share this link with someone you think would benefit from it too. And a quick reminder to subscribe to Eddie Out on social, as well as giving us that five-star rating and review. I'm very grateful for you taking the time to listen in with me today. And until next time, big hits, big fun, good health, and high water. Cheers. Cheers.